So it's the same as when they used to visit me in Charleston and stand next to me and I was talking through a case. And they're proficient and they're great physicians too, but you can always learn from each other. Of course, I'm learning from them too. So at any given moment, we can call a friend and they can come in from anywhere in the world. He says, hey, take a look at this. Have you seen something similar to this? And again, everybody can benefit from that. And we're in a field where what we do is so critical for patients and the margin is so slim. Hello and welcome to the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. On this podcast, we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, the how, and we explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at MUSC and hopefully all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Dr. Goodwin. Good morning, Kevin. All right, so today we're talking about technology and innovation inside the operating room. It's pretty exciting. It is exciting. And and also one of our favorite subjects, which is collaboration. Tell me a little bit about our guest today. So I've known Alex for several years now, and I always think Alex is is fascinating because his mind is one of those that always looks for how can we do things better, and then is always jumping towards how do we scale that to make an even bigger impact. And so every time I meet with him, he's always got uh, huge plans in order to just make uh, real meaningful improvements for the patients that he's serving. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in. Well, Dr. Alex Spiotto, welcome to the MUSC podcast studio. Uh, You are uh, a neurosurgeon here at MUSC, but you do much more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is here? Sure. So I'm a neurosurgeon. I also do endovascular neurosurgery. I'm the director for the neurodevascular division and the vice chair for the department. I'm also very involved in the residency training. I was a program director for about seven and a half years or so. So recently gave that up, but I'm still very invested in the, in the training and the mentorship of residents. Okay, and you're a part of the STAR network. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why Absolutely. that's uh, important? Happy to. So STAR stands for Stroke, Thrombectomy, and Aneurysm Registry. Um, so that was co-founded here at MUSC by myself and one of my prior students, Ali Alawea. At the time, we were the, the genesis was to try to get a network of research collaborators. Um, at the time, every time we had a research question that came up with something we saw in practice, to get enough patient data together to answer that question, it relied on us reaching out to multiple hospitals around the world, mm. getting seven or eight, 10, 15, or 20 centers to contribute data. But every time we did that, it was like starting all over again, which took a lot of effort and a lot of time. And we had been successful in leading those multi-center collaborations, but we were thinking, there's got to be a better way. So that was really a genesis is instead of reinventing the wheel every time we had a new research question, we just committed to all these hospitals that we already work with pretty closely to just start collecting data so we could answer not just the question we had that moment, but any question in the future, even ones we hadn't thought of yet. So it started out by reaching out to about 20 centers or so. All 20 agreed, and we're excited to be part of it. And then ever since then, although we've marketed at STAR with, with branding and publications and social media, we haven't really recruited sites but based on just our involvement and, and people seeing the publications that come out, now we're at 100 and plus 105 or 106 sites. They just want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of it. So that was, that was really the, the beginning was purely as a research collaboration, getting data together so we can answer better questions. Then it became a lot more once we started getting these people together around the world, and we all wanted the same thing, which was to have more information and, and learn from each other to ultimately better care for our patients. Then it started branching out into more of a network. And really the the impetus was, can we learn from each other 
and that's where it led into this other aspect of STAR, which is this uh, collaboration and network. Now, Alex, what type of data do you guys collect in the STAR registry? So it started with uh, data on patients undergoing treatment for stroke and aneurysm, and it was a lot more detailed than previously um, people were accustomed to capturing. We were looking at, of course, all the demographic data, patients coming in, and the outcome data, but procedurally a lot more detailed than we used to have. So, for example, for the stroke interventions, not just was it two or three or four attempts, but for each attempt, what was the different technique used? Because a lot of it's so time-dependent and time-based. So we started really being able to answer some questions based on number of attempts with different techniques um, related to outcomes and hemorrhagic complications. So it has a lot more detail than the traditional data sets. And uh, what types of questions uh, are you or the other sites asking and, and looking in the data for? Yeah, we have so many questions. So on any given moment, we have now a full-time star manager that's covered by funding. And we probably need a second of her, to clone her, but she probably is managing 20 or 30 research questions at the moment. But recent questions that we come up with uh, just off the top of my head, for example, um, looking at the procedure time and complications. Of course, for stroke, we know getting in and getting out it's so crucial, not just for the brain, getting that blood flow restored, but also we think about every maneuver we're doing in the brain artery, it's almost like playing Russian roulette. You know, you don't want to try something a thousand times. You're bound to get the complication that happens one out of a hundred times. So we looked at procedure time and number of attempts with complications and good outcome. And we showed that with, uh, with the currently available technology and the techniques, it's actually about 30 minutes or three attempts because we're so fast. It used to be an hour, hour and a half. Now, within 30, after 30 minutes of procedure time and three attempts, you should really reevaluate, not to stop or to continue, just to reevaluate what's going on with that case. Because we know past those three attempts of 30 minutes, chance of good outcome goes down, complications go, are increasing at that point. And are you seeing changes in best practice coming as a result of uh, the research questions that you're asking? And I know that you guys yep. publish a lot, but are you actually seeing that translate into clinical mm -hmm. practice? Absolutely, absolutely. We just had a recent publication. As we gathered data, we just got um, 200 patients from our Spain site yesterday, so I was quite excited about that from Spain originally. So having Spain part of it was important to me. But as we have data from all the different regions of the world, we're actually looking at what does the patient look like who goes for thrombectomy. Some sites, based on socioeconomics, may have maybe more aggressive, less aggressive. So are people taking younger patients on average, or are they taking older? Um, other other variables during the procedure itself. So some areas we believe will be more more cost conscious. And ultimately, of course, is the outcomes that matter. So we're going to look at regional differences by six or seven different regions of the world, you know, Asia, Europe, North America, South America, um, and look at differences in practices. So uh, gathering information and, I guess, more importantly, sharing information is kind of the heart of your work. And one of the, the aspects that I would love to talk about next is uh, what's going on in the uh, OR, actually. I was reading up on some of the stuff you're doing, and it's just it's kind of mind-boggling to me. Can you unpack a little bit of that? So as we started working with our star collaborators around the world based on these research projects, what happens we start to get to know each other, right? So the network expands, and then you start feeling comfortable sharing experiences. Hey, what do you think about this new device? I had trouble with it. I worked well. Would you, would you tackle this complex problem or not? We, I was noticing that that was happening but it wasn't really happening in a platform that we were supporting. It was happening 
through WhatsApp or through texting. Of course, we do it every day. We forget. But it's really critical, and it's really often the margin of error is very small. So often it's just a millimeter between a good case and a bad case. So no matter what level you are, everybody could use the help of one of their colleagues that they respect. Sure. I, I could use it. They could use my input. We could all use the input. But it was happening, and I could see there was a need for it, but there wasn't really a platform that could really you know, support it. So that's where we move STAR from just being a research collaboration into this other network. And we think about, in most hospitals, you have a partner. You may have a senior partner who's close, physically close on the campus. So during the middle of a hard case, even if you're very good and very talented, you still need someone to weigh in. Usually it's just a cognitive, hey, take a look at this with me. Do you think that's a little clot forming in the coil? Do you think I put another coil in? And you just need to bounce ideas off. But not everybody has that. And people are often working remotely in, in remote regions. So the idea is if you're in the STAR network, it's like we have a partner that just down the hall we can bring into our procedure room at any given moment. From anywhere around the world. Anywhere in the world. So how do we do that? And with, of course, with COVID and virtual and all these um, new technologies that came out of that experience, there is a platform that we ended up reaching out to, and they saw our vision. So they have now have a strategic alliance or partnership. So they're supporting STAR by providing the equipment for free and supporting it 24-7. And then what's coming out soon is they're going to actually give eight hours for free every month. So the idea is now that when I'm in the middle of a procedure, I can phone a friend basically or pull the audience and I'll have my star network already starting to fill in as we get these um, equipments around the world. I can rapid dial anybody in the middle of a procedure. That's amazing. And we broadcast cases to South America at colleagues um, out of star from Argentina and Uruguay who were just watching a case. And of course they used to visit and with COVID that all stopped. So now they can join me in there. It's the same experience as if you're in the room because they're seeing what I'm seeing. It's being directly broadcast to their iPad or their computer. So it's not a camera looking at a screen where there can be reflections or people in the way. It's directly a direct feed from our fluoroscopy machines that we're using in the procedure. Then they have two cameras that they can control. So they can look in at hands at the time we're deploying certain devices. They can look around the room. So it's the same experience as if they were visiting, which they used to, and they would stand next to me during the procedure. Of course, I have headphones so I can talk to them. If they ask me questions, then it's not really, it's, I'm the one hearing it. So it's not interfering with the noise in the room because there's a lot of activity. So it's the same as when they used to visit me in Charleston and stand next to me and I was talking through a case. So at any given moment, we can call a friend and they can come in from anywhere in the world. He says, hey, take a look at this. Have you seen something similar to this? And again, everybody can benefit from that. Um, and we're in a field where it's such a, what we do is so critical for patients and the margin is so slim. So we're already trying to phone, hey, I heard you've done a number of these new cases with a new, new stent. What were your thoughts? Where did it work? Where did it not work? So this is a way that we can we can get everybody together. I like the idea of that because, uh, as you said, it's a, you know, you have a very small margin for error. And, and this is, quite honestly, you know, when we think about things that are really hard, the people are always like, oh, it's rocket science or brain surgery. And this is brain surgery, <laughs> right? Literally. Um, and your skill set. I mean, there's not that many of you out there that do this. So the ability to connect globally and sort of raise global health as well, I think, is really a fantastic outcome of where technology has been able to bring you, but then also speaks a lot to sort of the vision that you have about how can we start to leverage 
all of this stuff to sort of really improve the field uh, overall and increase that level of connectivity. I think it's pretty fascinating. You said we could always learn from each other. That's yep. so important, so critical. And But let's talk a little bit about the limitations of the technology. Um, you know, when, when I was reading up on this, I was thinking of the last couple of years and Zoom meetings that may or may not be successful and whatnot. But you, this, this technology is very s- specific. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? You said there's cameras that the... Mm-hmm person on the other end can control right so they can control so they can look around then they can choose in their display to have you know the, the camera focusing on my hands during a critical portion when I'm loading a device or pushing a device that can be larger so they can focus you know not just what to focus on during that moment but also amplify on the screen now one of the things just to sidetrack that really drew me to this technology is if you screen record that yeah, case, because everybody had DVD recorders in their procedure rooms and cameras, but then you need a whole editing team to put that all together. But if someone's watching a procedure and they understand the procedures, so they're focusing on the right things at the right time, they're not missing the critical things, and you screen record that, then when you walk out of the case, you have a case style, you build a library. So now, yes, the people who watch it live could have benefited, they could have given you feedback, they themselves were watching to benefit. But the thing that STARS doing now is after the fact, we can record these cases. And again, they're already edited because it's happening yeah. in real time. And I, I, put, I submitted the first one for the Star Library. But we want hospitals all around the world to do it. That could be cataloged and searched. So anybody who's training can jump on and say, let me see how they do it at Thomas Jefferson or UCLA or you know Basel University in, in Switzerland. So they can actually pull it up and you get the live experience. It's like a Peloton ride. You can do a live Peloton ride where you can do the ride the next day, but you get the same experience because it's as if you're live. You're seeing it. It's kind of like the football playroom, right? When you're prepping for a game, the coaches are all in there and you're watching reels of previous games to watch how how they did it. And it strikes me that from a training perspective, you can start to prepare for cases by finding something in the library that you can watch and sort of that same analogy maybe for the audience um, is is to think about it maybe like Mm -hmm. what we've been doing for years for Mm -hmm. athletics to really up the up the proverbial game yeah the way we were teaching historically was a powerpoint you might have submitted a video but nobody was going to sit through 30 minutes of a case but if you think about it you have a slide that says the before and then the after you know an mca is included someone's having a stroke then it's open and you say i use these three catheters and it took seven minutes. That doesn't really, I mean, it, it does check the box. But that's different than actually watching what you did for seven minutes and seeing what your team in the room did for seven minutes. And I remember that experience. Um, we had a visiting professor here years ago who was a friend of mine. And he was, you know, he was done with the lectures. He was watching our angel suite. And, of course, it was like what happened. A stroke came in. So, of course, he's like, I want to see this because we all want to see how everybody else does so he had his timer. He was an Iron Man watch, and he was timing us. And it was a seven-minute procedure at the time. It was really fast. Now we wouldn't really think much of it. And he was like, "Wow, I've seen your data and I've seen your results, but now that I've actually seen it, I can do it." And he was very good. You know, he was no slouch. But seeing rather than just hearing about it, because he could see what the team was doing, and he saw that okay, you guys weren't really rushing, but you were moving efficiently, and the team was setting things up before we needed it. So there's definitely an advantage and a benefit to watching a case from start to finish rather than just a highlight reel because then you know how to incorporate that pace into your team. You could have 
imagine you have this, the library of cases that we just started, and I submitted the first one. Um, you could actually sit down with your technicians and your fellows, and you could watch it together because it is a team. You know, we have some of the fastest times. And that's not just because I'm fast, it's because my techs are fast, and we have this room set up. So it's it's um, it's not just one, it's really a team effort. So you can imagine sitting as a team and, and watching that. I'm not sure why I have so many sports analogies going through my head, and I'm not <laughs> sure if it's because I know Alex is a, a highly driven individual who does a lot of um, endurance athletics, but I'm, I'm imagining like NASCAR pit stops, like when you think about that. It is a whole entire team, and everyone has a role in order to make it go fast. Um, and so understanding that it's not just what the surgeon's doing, but everyone in that room has to be doing whatever they're doing at the top yep. of their game in order to get that time down as fast as possible kind of reminds me of a NASCAR Absolutely, stop. absolutely. And that was a concept that I was inspired with years ago when I was a medical student at Penn in Philadelphia rotating with a trauma team. They would, every, once a week, they would watch all the level 1A traumas. And they had a camera, and this is 2003, I mean, this was pretty radical then. And the whole department would sit and evaluate the trauma scenario. Say, what were you doing? Why are you tripping over this person? And every week they were improving, but they had to watch it. But yeah, we talked about having that connectivity with the technology that allows the virtual presence. And I just want to f- emphasize, we focused on the, the, you know, the faculty to faculty, which is very important. But then we started introducing the concept with the trainee, the residents and fellows and students. What we have now established is we have our star partners that have this technology. And if we get done early one afternoon, that's great. But then they, I say, what? who are you going to join? So they might join Yale, they might join Utah, some of the early adopters. But our fellows now can join and watch another procedure. And of course, they're learning. And they may come back and say, hey, we do it this way and it works, but if it doesn't, we have this other technology now, this other technique. And I love it because you're always looking to add to your toolkit. I remember there was a fellow from another institution joined us with the very first case we did. It's something that was pretty routine for us. But we had a little bit of a nuanced technique that I didn't really think much of until the fellow was like, oh, wow, we struggle. But now I see with that technique, we'll just overcome it. And so she was going to apply that to her team that same day. And that's what really excites us about STAR is the immediacy of the impact because prior it took years you needed publications to come out which are always a year and a half out right or you have to go to national meeting which is good but that's yearly it would trickle out and by the time with this kind of connectivity it would happen in months because people would have been sharing cases you could have seen cases but now the idea with the star connectivity just like if my partner figures out something Hey, there's one device, you know, it turns out if you use it this one way, this happens, this is great. Oh, or this happens, is not good. I'm just down the hall from the procedure room, and we can text each other, and I can walk in and check it out. So I learned that from my partner the same day. So I don't have that to live through that and learn the hard way the next day. But if you're not with that partner, it may take you years to really, for it to trickle out. So the idea if you're in the STAR network is that you can learn immediately from your partners. They just happen to be your STAR partners. So it's not, you're not relegated to who's your partner at your institution. You can learn from all these really talented and motivated people all around the world the same day, which gets us to the new development they're working on is, is having a some uh, sort of a star app that people can communicate immediately. And also that would be uh, the way to connect people and dial in for people joining you virtually or even setting up calls. So if I'm on call this weekend coming up, which I am, I can say, hey, I'm on call. I'm gladly host five fellows to sign up. And through the app now, when I come in for a procedure, you get notified. You can just 
jump out of bed and then um, keep your camera off and then join <laughs> us. <laughs> we used to send our fellows in their second year out to Europe or somewhere else for a month or two just to learn. At that point, when you're in that level, when you first start out, you couldn't get much out of it. At that level, from just watching, you can learn because you have enough understanding. So now this is now applied to just anywhere. So Alex, outside of the app um, that you were talking about developing, where do you see technology and then being able to take the star register going, you know, and sort of big picture vision, even if it's not on your radar yet, like from an immediacy standpoint, where do you want to go? Right now for a star, we have basically data sheets of information and we have interpretation of images. Was there a hemorrhage, yes or no? Was there a stroke post-procedure? And that's great. And we have now about 15,000 patients, so that's really great. But to take it to the next level, if we keep that same modality, but then just double it, it doesn't really add much more value. We already have a lot of patients. So we're working with and collaborating with some of the AI companies that look that are already in our hospitals to interpret imaging for making decisions. So it's fairly easy to make a research node and have contracts in place where now the raw images can be stored, tagged to the data, of course, in an anonymized way. So now we have our imaging that's the raw image data sets, not our interpretation, linked with our data set. And then we're also looking to expand um, and getting genomic sequencing with MUSC as a partnership with Helix. So we're looking to target some of our star patients at MUSC and then hopefully roll it out. But now you could have genomic data, of course, the data we're getting, age, sex, gender, procedural demographics outcomes, and then the raw image data sets. And then now you can start do, doing really big data analytics with it. And then historically, the, um, the outcomes for neurologic disorders are pretty crude. So we're partnering with the Brain Aneurysm Foundation to try to f- interpolate some much more sophisticated neurocognitive outcomes. So those are the next steps, um, expanding the data, not just the data in quantity, but the types of data we're gathering. So what we're trying to do with STARS, and I think that why it's grown so rapidly is we support all the sites with technology, so there's benefits, because all these sites are putting in quite a bit of effort. And we have tons of publications. We give authorship very generously. So in any publication, there's always an author from each of the sites. And they can choose to rotate. Any one of the sites can lead any project. And it has to go through a scientific steering committee, which is not me, so we delegated. And that those roles change every year. But if that um, project proposal is accepted, then we support them with funded statistics. So they can lead any project. They can be the primary author and presenter. We just, that's how it's... That's how we have 25 or 30 papers currently because people really feel like they have ownership. They're not just contributing data, and we're, we're running away with it. It's really everybody is a main participant. So I think in the future, not just getting more data and doing the big data analytics to be able to answer questions we can never answer before is continuing to support the sites, make it easier for them, give them more returns, so the more sites will want to be a part of it. And Alex, maybe as a follow-up question to that, um, I know that you're interested in robotics and we're doing a little bit of it here um, and that you've been establishing what you call the Bat Cave here at MUSC as well, which I think is a fantastic name. Maybe you can describe for the audience um, sort of what the Bat Cave is, what we're doing in robotics, um, and then sort of long-term, how do you see all of these things coming together in the most ideal? Like, what would you love to see by, by the end of your career um, for the field that, that sort of relies upon all three of those things? Yeah. So the Bat Cave, <clears throat> when it comes to stroke intervention, every minute really can save brain. So the Bat Cave is just flipping the model totally over. Instead of bringing the patient to the sophisticated equipment that we have to do these procedures. 
we're bringing that equipment to the patient. And it's, again, borrowing from the trauma experience because they do it. Someone comes in with a gunshot wound or a knife sticking out of their chest, they don't have time to evaluate them in the ER and go to the OR because it's two or three stories above. So that trauma bay can flex up or down. It can be just the regular floor. It can become an ICU in a moment. It's got everything you need. It can become an OR in a moment. Some surgeries are done, open heart surgeries, et cetera, are done in that trauma bay. So it's designed to be able to flex up if the patient needs it, knowing that the patient can't travel. So the back cave is a similar concept which is applied to stroke. Someone comes in with a stroke, they can get all their imaging in the ER, but now they can get their procedure in the ER also, rather than having to go upstairs. And it shaves probably 30 minutes um, minimum, uh, and that will lead to significant improvement in outcome. And then back to the robotics is a great question, is we're very excited about robotics. The virtual technology that we have allows you to see and hear, can't smell, you can see and hear, and talk, but you can't touch a patient. And I mentioned earlier, oftentimes you just need that cognitive input. It's probably 95% of the time, just, hey, look at this with me. I'm thinking this, and you bounce ideas, and then you move forward, and you're comfortable with something. But 5% of the time, it's just you need someone else or you need someone more experienced, or sometimes it's just somebody else trying it to make a maneuver that you can't make. And everybody will need that from time to time. So with the robotics, it's really fun because now... You can have people coming in that are experts in helping you out, not just cognitively, but actually physically helping you, technically speaking, and bringing the technology and the treatment to the patient rather than the patient traveling far to go to you know, the few centers that have the equipment. So now with robotics, we can extend our reach much more broadly, and then we could cover a whole region. You know, it could be two or three people covering a large region rather than 15 or 20 people. And we could actually get the treatment for the patient faster. Yeah, I think it's really exciting um, as we think about it because I, to your point, you know, if you live in a metropolitan area, right, um, because with stroke, as you've mentioned, you know, time is of the essence, right? The longer it takes to treat it, um, the worse the outcomes are. So if you live in a large metropolitan area, you're probably not that bad off, right? Because you can get picked up, you can get to the hospital. Um, Hopefully you don't have to go floor to floor, which, um, you know, takes a a bit more time. But particularly for a state like South Carolina, which has a huge incidence of uh, stroke and is also very rural, that's a long time for someone to be able to get to a site where they can actually have a staffed uh, neurointerventionalist there. Um, and it may not be possible at all, quite frankly. So this idea that you can start to predict what treatment you're going to need based off of what all the things that you've learned from the STAR registry, and then at some point in the future, be able to perhaps remotely help um, the staff at maybe a rural hospital that's a little bit closer, I think is has huge potential from a from a patient impact standpoint in terms of improved outcome, um, which could be, in a, like I said, in a state like this that is largely rural and, and sort of spread out, have huge health impacts for, for everybody that you're, you're here, so. Well, collaboration, innovation, you, sir, are changing what's possible. We love that here. And so I just want to thank you, Dr. Alex Biota, for your time today. Thank you. We appreciate you being a part of the podcast. Perfect. Thank you both. Appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.